For the first four years of my life, my family consisted of my mom and my dad, my older sister, Anna, and myself. Jane and Melissa would come along later. We didn't have a lot of money, but that didn't stop my parents from instilling the Christmas spirit into all of us. One of my earliest memories, such a big adventure, was getting on a bus dressed up in Christmas clothes my mother had sewed. I think it was a red velvet vest. We headed down on the bus to the Eaton's department store to get our picture taken with Santa and see the store windows in the toy store. Eaton's looked like a massive palace to me. The store windows were magical and mechanical with Santa's workshop on the move. The elevator had an operator. We'd crowd in and the operator would bellow out, Premier Taj, first floor. And each stop, Dizzy Mataj, second floor. Until finally, a lifetime for a four-year-old in his bright red vest, we hear Sanky Mataj, fifth floor, and he would smile and say, Santa's waiting. You know, waiting for Santa in the picture was never a highlight. My mother would frantically try to manage a head of hair that is yet to get it right. But it was afterwards when we'd visit the toy department that my imagination would fire up and I dreamed the dreams a young boy could have. I think it was then that I fell in love with retail and my love has grown stronger over the years. When I was 16, I worked at Siltest Dairy scooping ice cream. And then as a stock clerk at Cumberland before finding my passion, selling suits at the bay. When I first moved to Toronto, I complimented my income by working part-time at Tip Top and crushing whatever sales incentives they threw in front of me. And I rarely ever sold a man wandering into Tip Top, but if a couple came in, I would work with the women to create wonders. The beiges and greys would give away to color and accents and accessories. And I personally tried to suspend the suspender fad that seemed to be holding up everyone who worked in professional services back in those days. Over the years, I've done advertising for retailers, created retail programs, and for the past decade, I've delivered keynotes and hosted major retail conferences. I love retail as much today as I did as a kid. The sights, the sounds, the energy, the shopping experiences. And I'm an advocate of shopping local, supporting Main Street, malls, and our local economy. And we all know it's under attack. Amazon has become the world's largest vending machine. They treat the mobile phone as a Trojan horse, and they ride in with a personalized offering that puts everything within desire. And they're not consumed with making profit. Their focus is priming every consumer to shop with them. They want to control our consumer-driven economy through one word, convenience. And Amazon, it's drowning a lot of retailers who make their living on main streets and malls. And you add to that a pandemic which encourages us to stay home, shop online, and we do venture out. We see every store windows plastered with warnings. And our only passport inside is to wear a mask and bathe ourselves in sanitizers. Well, you can see why retail is in a tough place. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. So when I started reading about this 30-something Canadian who believes in retail, who sees opportunities to invest where others divest or worse go bankrupt, I had to have him on Chatter That Matters. His name's Doug Putnam. He will tell you that he was a failure in university, he's not the sharpest tool in the shed, but at age 37, he's become the world's preeminent pre-recorded music retailer with 350 stores in Canada, the US and UK. Add to that a portfolio in Marina, restaurants, David T's, which is now Tea Kettle, and Toys R Us in Canada. He's succeeding where others have failed and he believes in bricks and mortar and all it offers to spark the same degree of excitement and wonder that Eaton's did for me as a four-year-old. And if you have an interest in entrepreneurship, retail, or how to zig why others zag, then I encourage you to listen with pen and paper next to you. Doug, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks for having me. Doug, in my show, I chat with ordinary people who do extraordinary things despite circumstance. 
My idea is that life lessons that you've lived can also inspire others to do more and to be more. However, every interview I've watched about you, the best you describe yourself is ordinary. You quit university before they said they'd throw you out. But here you are at 37 with a portfolio of retail brands generating billions of dollars in sales. That's not ordinary to me. Well, I, you know, on the sales side, sure. But, you know, that's just one piece of, of the puzzle. You know, I've, I've been really lucky on, on the things I bought and, and uh, I've had great teams help me kind of uh, turn them around and fix them. But uh, I do assure you, uh, nothing extraordinary. You know, one of the consistent themes when I talk to people that have really put a dent in the universe, whatever area they want to be in, this could be an Olympian, a business leader, somebody in not-for-profit. It's always about, I've been lucky, I've been fortunate, I've been fortunate to be around great teams. Do you think that sense of generosity, inviting other people in to success is key to actually achieving success? Actually, you know, I, I do. I think you have to come by it honestly, otherwise it, it, it's disingenuous. And I think we can all tell when something is disingenuous. Actually, truly appreciating the people around you, appreciating what they've done for you and with you. And knowing that you really can't do everything yourself, so you need those good teams. Part of luck, you know, you always do here, right? Oh, hard work equals luck and more luck. And that's probably the case, but, you know, candidly, right? We're all very lucky with where we were born. We're, we're lucky with the parents we get, with the situations we've, we've come into. And, and then there's hard work too. But, you know, I, I remember someone saying to me, well, if you were born in the middle of a third world country with nothing around you, how would you have built this? Well, it would have been a lot tougher. So I think we do have to look at it as, you know, for me specifically being in Canada, I was lucky to born, be born here, lucky to have the parents that I do uh, who supported me through everything. So tell me a little bit about your parents. We're going to get into the sort of jet stream of a career you're on. And just to put this in context, everybody, as I said earlier, he's 37 years old. Before we get into that, tell me a little bit about family life growing up with your parents and maybe some lessons that you learned along the way. My dad was a steel worker at Stelco uh, for 17 years. Uh, my mom was a bank teller at Scotiabank. My mom would say my dad always had uh, big ambitions uh, and big dreams, but uh, neither of them uh, had anything beyond high school. And, and both actually went back and did night school to get their degrees in their later life when they had kids you know, always thinking that education would, would get them something more. And midlife, I would say for them in their late 40s, um, they decided to remortgage their house uh, for $50,000 and start a business. And at the time, it was a sport card business. So selling hockey cards, baseball cards, stuff like that. And my dad would drive across the border, pick up cards, bring them back, and then sell them basically out of his car to different retailers. My house was always full of, of sports cards. Funny story, when I was a kid, I, I was going door to door selling chocolate bars for a charity. I was probably five years old at the time. And one of the neighbors came over to my dad and said, I always see these transports dropping off these giant boxes. Is that what your son's selling? Those chocolate <laughs> bars? And I said, no, no, that's, that's truly a charity thing, but uh, it's sports cards. So our house was literally littered with cardboard boxes. So I really grew up in, in the business. You know, my mom was there to, to support my dad and do the books and uh, make sure that, you know, he was paying his taxes and paying suppliers. So really, it was, it was a joint effort. My dad being more of the dreamer and pushing through and my mom being more of the realist saying, 
How are you going to afford that? How are we going to pay for that? Mid 40s, Stelco, secure job and pension. A lot of people are at that point in life and saying, I want to do something else. I want to unlock my imagination. I want to pursue my passion. They had the courage to do that and remortgage their house. Was that because both of them were all in or was it just like, what's that anomaly? Because that doesn't happen all the time. I think it is about being all in, you know, believing that you can do it. I always say to people, I genuinely believe it. You take someone who's making 150 grand a year. It's, I think, a lot harder for them to actually do it than someone in in my dad's position. Yes, he had a pension, and and at the time, Stucco was a top payer. But I think my dad's belief was always, even if this fails, I can go back and do another job and make money. But you know, my dad was also the guy when Stucco was on strike. He would work picking up the blue boxes. He would go and look for bottles to resell. Like, my dad was never a kind of guy who felt like that job is below me. He would do anything. And it was about providing for the family. So I think his innate belief, which is mine for myself, is even if I lost it all, I could go back. I could go do something else. I could work in a grocery store. I could sell fruits and vegetables. I, there's something I could do to make money and provide for my family. So I, I think that gave him confidence that we can be all in on this and we'll still be okay if for whatever reason it doesn't work out. To listen to this, this is a powerful lesson in life on risk and reward because it is courageous to risk everything to chase something. But what Doug's sharing with you as well is that it's not all or nothing. You can fall back and reclaim part of your life. You can move on. So sometimes if all it's holding up about losing everything, remember those words of advice. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. When we come back, Doug Putman's university days are measured in months, not years. But while he's there, he launches a fruit stand business and the seeds are planted for the serial entrepreneur. I think each time you buy something that uh, isn't in perfect condition and you you turn it around and make it work, you, you get to learn a lot of things and you learn how to be very fiscally responsible, especially in a in a rebuild. Um, and you start understanding where you need to spend money and, and where you don't. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Doug Putman. While the herd is riding out of conventional retail, Doug is riding back in and right into Amazon and other forces of change like music streaming. We'll soon learn his strategies for building brands and countering the status quo. But first, let's take a bite out of his first business. Doug, your experience at Laurier University can be measured in months, not years, and failure versus passing grades. Why didn't university work out for you? You know, I think it's a few things, right? So my parents went back to school to get their degrees. And so they valued education highly. And it was always, and I think there's a lot of kids like this in in Canada and the US, the expectation is you're going to university. I never did particularly well in any of my grades, to be honest, but uh, I had OAC and all you had to do was have good grades in six classes. And that's all university looked at. So for those six classes, I worked my ass off and got a good grade to get into university because I probably wouldn't have been good enough anyway. So, you know, then you go to university and I was in it for business, which is funny because that's what I do, but it, it just didn't resonate with me. We, we weren't talking about things that I felt were all that interesting. I don't think business school necessarily teaches being an entrepreneur. And I think that's where I was most interested. I'm sure I would have got a lot of valuable lessons out of it had I done better and you know actually showed up and, and done those things. But it was just never a fit. I, I think I was just too motivated by 
getting going. I always wanted my life to start. Like I, I didn't look at university as a start in my life. I looked at it as something I had to do to get to the start. And it felt like just getting out, doing it and starting to work would be the better option for me. Do you think that that is advice for other people? We're certainly hearing it more and more that people are foregoing an entire university degree or choosing to march their own drum, not necessarily following the path that their parents hope they do. Is that something that more people should be thinking through versus just saying, I got the degree, so I'm set for life? I think it depends what you want to be. Clearly, if you want to be a doctor, you're going to have to go. You know, I think if you want to look at other things, business, art, there's lots of categories that fit into, you've got an option. You don't have to go to university. Um, you don't have to go to college. You can do things without that. I think you just have to reflect on yourself and say, what is actually important to me? Um, but you know, it is all risk reward. You know, by having a degree, you do have something. It's a piece of paper that does help you get into the door. It doesn't help you get in the door in any companies I own, right? Because I'm about the individual. I don't care what the education is, you know, except for, of course, you want to hire an accountant, you better have it. But in general, I'm more about the person and how, how are they to talk to? Are they personable? Do I think they have a great work ethic? So I still believe you can have no education. There's sales jobs everywhere right now that pay six figures. So there's a lot of things you can do to make really good money without that degree. I think it's just up to the individual. So you're in first year university and you decide that this entrepreneurial bug is worth pursuing and you open a fruit stand. I'd started the, the fruit stand just a little bit before university last year. So I was 17 and I got my license and you know, I'd always seen guys on the side of the road and just thought, well, that's an interesting business. And my dad said, well, you should, you should look into it. Like maybe it's something there. And so it started with buying wild blueberries and driving up North and picking them up and bringing them back here and setting up at a, a local like gas stations that were always good spots because you had traffic coming by and people would just come over and, and buy. And then I slowly kind of expanded raspberries and strawberries. And it's funny, I know you had uh, long goes on, you know, I met with them very early in this and, and kind of pick their brain. And they were nice enough to actually meet with, you know, the 17 year old kid asking about the fruit business. And so it, it just kind of grew and we did well at one stand. And so I kind of conned my friends into working for me uh, throughout their summers and opened up two, three, four and got up to five fruit stands on the side of the road. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, I did really, you know, I made good money doing that more than a lot of my friends who are working normal summer jobs, but I think I actually got a lot of experience. I, I learned that not all customers are nice, <laughs> not all customers are reasonable, but I also learned cash flow. You know, I, I couldn't buy $5,000 worth of fruits if I was only going to sell a thousand. And since it expires pretty quickly, there were just a lot of great, valuable lessons to learn on just this very small business. My mom uh, set me up when I wanted to do a lemonade stand when I was six years old. And she made me buy the lemons, rent the pitcher, figure out profit margin. There's no way I could set up in the front of our lawn because there's no traffic or sunshine. So I had no idea if I made more money that day, but I agree. You can learn some incredible lessons. What was it like having friends working for you? You're a young person. I mean, this, these are chums. These are people you hang out with. D did you have a challenge being the person with authority versus just one of a gang of five where you just have influence? Yeah. I mean, look, I think if you look at, as we go through the whole career that I've had, there's this recurring thing where I've, I've definitely worked with friends and hired friends. And when it works, it's fantastic. And when it doesn't, it's horrible. What I love about business and buying these companies is the people like, and it's not this hokey kind of 
BS thing that people say. For me, it's genuine. I love sitting and talking to our employees. I like hearing about what's going on in their day. And we have an absolute blast doing this, you know, like I hate to say it, but you know, yesterday at Toys R Us, the office was empty. It was 6 PM and there were three of us left and we were running around the office shooting each other with Nerf guns. Like we just, we have a lot of fun with what we do. It's not all, all business all the time. Where it always is tough is when a friend doesn't deliver, when a family member doesn't deliver to your level uh, of expectation. But I think, you know, that's where having some clear guidelines in the beginning but also being prepared to lose those friends. Like, I think that's something that's hard for people to understand. But even if you give the best expectations, if they don't deliver, they most people feel like they did and you were unreasonable. So I think you just have to be okay with knowing that if you're going to hire these people, there's going to be some great times, but there's a potential for some really ugly, bad times. Three years, you're rocking, you've got fruit stands, making some good cash. And then you decide to go back and join the family business and you're, Sounds like your dad valued your experience at minimum wage, brings you in, works in the warehouse. Tell me a little bit about how it felt like to go back and suddenly now have a boss. Well, I mean, first I had to go home and tell my parents I flunked out or, you know, was pretty close to flunking out. You know, the funny thing about my family is on mid-level things, they're ruthless, brutal, rip you to shreds. On the big stuff, always very understanding. So when I went home and I was like, you know, this isn't going to work. It was an okay thing, but it was my mom who was the hardest to convince. My mom said, look, we'll pay you minimum wage, but candidly, this business doesn't make enough money. You're never going to have a career here. There's no life here for you, but for the short term, help in the warehouse, help on sales, we'll give you a minimum wage, but don't think this is your career path. So they offer you a sales 1% commission. Did that light you up and say, well, if you're not going to pay me minimum wage, I can make a good wage? My first question was, how much is our best salesperson to right now? And so I looked at her sales and I was like, okay, she can do it. I can do it. And so then I looked at that and said, well, I can make some really good money doing this. So, you know, I just started hitting the phones, driving out, meeting customers, doing everything I, I could to grow the business. And of course it, it, it started growing. A lot of that was relationships and just being personable and getting along with people, which I still think is one of the most important things to success. It's not how educated you are. It's not how smart you are. Really, it's about understanding other people and being able to get along with them and figure out a way to get a, a common goal. How soon did you start flexing that young, everything is possible mind and start nudging your parents to say, we should be doing this or that? The real question is how long did I do that and then have them lose money on it? It was pretty quickly. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was definitely very positive that my ideas were the right ideas and I knew how to get us to the next level. But, you know, there was a lot of pain in that. Um, and, and I give it, you know, I, I owe a lot to my parents for allowing me to make those mistakes, but those were costly mistakes. I, I definitely lost the company money doing bad things like buying too much inventory, not being able to sell it. Um, and so I think it was a lesson to me very early on. Don't overvalue your own opinion just because it's your opinion. It could be worthless. So, you know, I think that that was a good learning lesson, but yeah, very quickly I wanted to start doing more and growing more and, and, uh, and pushing for more. Um, so that's, you know, it was, it was a good time, but tough time. My guest today is Doug Putman, who is age 37, has built a retail empire. Coming up, we learn how he survives and thrives in this crossfire hurricane competing with Amazon and a pandemic where authorities encourage you to stay at home and everything else that's hitting retail all at once. 
Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Small business owners are the heart of our economy, and it's our collective interest to keep them beating strong. Small Business Matters to RBC, and a big shout out for their Small Business Navigator portal that points the way to practical resources, money-saving offers, and financial advice. Find out more at rbc.com slash smallbusinessnavigator. Obviously, I grew up in, in the 90s, so we had some uh, pretty interesting music throughout that. And, and uh, you know, I still remember thinking I was very cool with the uh, the Dance Mix 95 and stuff like that, where you hear it today and you're like, ah, oh, not quite as cool as I once thought I was. But, uh, you know, in 2014, when, when uh, I bought Sunrise, um, you start hanging out with people who really know music. Um, you think you know music and then you meet these people. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest is Doug Putman, a Canadian who believes in retail and the experiences that it offers. Doug, over a 10-year period, you go on an absolute shopping spree. A marina, a restaurant, Sunrise Records, HMV Canada, HMV UK, FYE, and most recently, Toys R Us in Canada. First thing I'd say to you is, how did it all begin where you go from kind of selling and making some mistakes with your parents to becoming this, I guess Hollywood would call a, a bit of a tycoon or serial entrepreneur. <laughs> I don't think they think tycoon, but uh, look, you know, I think uh, it, it all kind of fell together. So really one of the pivotal points was I was out trying to sell toys and games and I, I met a customer called Sunrise Records. And uh, it was run by a gentleman named Malcolm, and, and he had a head buyer named Tim Baker. I developed uh, a great relationship with this buyer. And at the time, they had 30 stores. That, that was our biggest customer at the toy business. We developed this relationship and this trust, and um, we became friends. He came to me and said, hey, you know, uh, our, our owner wants to retire. Is this something you're looking, would you look at buying us? And, and you know, I eventually did buy Sunrise. So that was my jump into into retail. You know, I bought Sunrise. It did well. HMV went bankrupt in Canada. And so we had a decision. Do you take your, at that time, five stores and expand to 80? Or do you sit back? If I jump for this 80, what's the worst that happens? And the worst that happens is I go back to just selling toys. And that's okay. I'm, I'm good with just being a salesman selling toys. I think that would be great. So to me, it was worth the risk. And so we, we did that. How did that happen so quickly? And what did you learn about yourself? I'm okay with what most people deem as high risk. I think they've been very calculated decisions. Um, and I always believed that they, would, that they would work out. You know, I had the best mentor in the world and my father, who is still the best businessman I know. Even today, my dad is still my best friend. We do lunch every day. Family is still at the core of everything. And so I think when you have this really strong core, whether it is your family or another mentor or someone else, I think it, it gives you this sense that you can achieve anything. You can do these things and, and you don't need to be afraid because as a worst case, it is just business. You can come back and do something else. You still have that family, that core unit. Sunrise you buy and that's because... The, the founders retiring. So you got to take over a culture that's very influenced and, and woven together by an individual. You acquire HMV, a culture that has felt nothing but pain and punishment over many years. How do you start working with these different cultures? One where I've got to be, I got to step into the founder's shoes. And the other one is 
I got to get people to believe in something they've lost faith in, which is leadership. Typically speaking, in the businesses we've bought where there's struggles, it, it is at the top level. And so you're starting by making changes. And that's always tough. So the first thing I do is spend a lot of time with the team and really listen to them. And I've always been great about asking lots of questions and getting people to feel comfortable in answering those questions. You get a lot of insights from them. You know, my right-hand guy will tell you, he's never met someone who loves breakfast, lunch, and dinner as much as me. I'm booked breakfast, lunch, and dinner with someone always. I'm always sitting and talking. And I think a meal is a great way to do it for people to open up and feel relaxed. And so I think you just learn about where are the challenges in the company, where are these bottlenecks? And it gives you the ability, because the people are important, to change out the ones that don't fit with your strategy, to take off the shackles on the ones who do and let them grow and try new things and push the business forward. And it's shocking how quickly the transformation happens. Give us the highlight reel of what happens next. Because again, how old are you when you've now acquired HMV? That would be uh, eight years ago. So I had late 20s. Late 20s. So you bought HMV Canada. What happens next? Basically, after we buy it, we're inundated with figuring out what we do because we've now got 80 stores, but we're used to running five. We're hiring like crazy. We're trying to figure out what's the right leadership team, who are the right people. We're scrambling to make deals with landlords and hat in hand coming to them saying, you know, help us. We can't stay in business. You know, you need to work with us. We're going to suppliers with the same pitch. You know, my pitch has probably not changed uh, from then to today. It's you're working with an owner. I'm very involved. I'm very hands-on. And if I make you a promise, I'll deliver on that promise. And if I ask you for a favor, I'll never forget you gave me that favor. I've always carried that if you don't give me a favor that I need in the beginning, once I've made it, you're not that relevant to me anymore. And I, it's a tough one to be because things change. But there's still people I remember that I had to beg and plead for something Maybe eight out of 10 said yes, and two out of 10 didn't. And it's not that I don't work with the two out of 10 anymore. It's that they're no longer the priority. Whereas the eight out of the 10 who did it for me will always be the priority. I'll always have time for a call. I'll always help them out if they need something. That year of, of fixing HMB Canada and, and morphing it into Sunrise is all about changing the people, changing the culture, and working with suppliers and landlords to find a way that we can both make money. And it's probably one of the most stressful times I ever had, but it was so much fun. So the snowball keeps rolling though. You don't stop just with HMV Canada. Your appetite now says, well, if I could figure out these stores, I can go much bigger. Yeah. I mean, uh, a year and a half later, HMV UK goes bankrupt. It wasn't something I jumped on candidly. Um, I sat back and, and thought about it and thought what it would do to my life and how it would change my life. I finally make the jump and say, okay, it, it, I got to go down there and look at it. Literally, the day I looked at it, four days later of 24 hours a day, we, we struck a deal to buy it out of bankruptcy and, and restart it. So, Doug, tell me a little bit about Toys R Us. Yeah, when I see the pictures of you holding on to your kids, smiling, it, it's like you were a kid in a toy store. Tell me how that came about. And why did you feel you could compete with Walmart that's willing to give toys away to get moms in there at Christmas and Amazon that sees toys is a great way to drive traffic? Well, I mean, look, Toys R Us came about with emailing uh, Prem Watts of the owner of Fairfax. And it's a funny story, but I was reading a book and Prem was in it. Uh, I just sent him an email and said, hey, just read this. 
lots of stuff in common. We're in retail, you're in retail, would, would love to talk to you. Didn't assume he would get back to me. And uh, he did the very next day, which I think is something you'll find in common with a lot of people that have done well is the response times are, are usually pretty good. I just love the brand. Uh, I think the Babies Rest Toys Rest brand is is something special. It's something we all remember and love. You know, we remember being a Toys R Us kid. Toys is definitely a, a competitive landscape uh, with the retailers you mentioned. But ultimately, no one can offer the experience that Toys R Us does with 40,000 square feet. And their size of store is their blessing. It's their curse. If you can make that experiential, and by experiential, I, I really don't mean Ferris wheels and this. I just mean fun. The bones of it are good. The bones of the business are good. The top line of the business is good. But ultimately, we just need to make it a little bit more fun. And I think we can do something amazing with it. You know, when I grew up, we defined who we were by mass brands. I had a Coke or a Pepsi in my hand based on who I thought I was. Today, it seems to be much more my brands, more personal, more granular. Even when I look at the music industry, it's not like everybody running out to buy Abbey Road at the same time. It's discovering a new artist. How do you find a way to be a mass retailer in this game of highly personalized discoveries? I think the real simple answer to that is having very educated uh, store associates. The people meeting the, the customer, if they're very educated, they can make it feel like a very personal experience. And if they understand enough of when it's sunrise, the artists that we carry or Toys R Us, the toys, then it can almost feel like when they come in, the customer comes in and they're looking for whatever it is that you're the fan of that. So I think it's important that your store associates can relate with your customer. I only want people to work at Sunrise who really enjoy the music business, the entertainment business. They, they love the artists. They love the films. This is their life. And for Toys R Us and Babies R Us, that's, I want people who are passionate about that. If you don't love the joy when kids come in and their eyes are wide and play, I'm not the business for you. You should find something else you can be passionate about. Try to figure out how to make life here work on minimum wage. There's so many things that you could possibly be doing, but you don't have the money or the time. Handling three jobs or two jobs at a time for years, it just takes a lot of time out of you and uh, it's, it's tough. You can exist, you can get by. You know, you can find ways to get by, but you don't have them, those extra things, you know. Doug, you really inspire me when you talk about talent and passion, but a lot of people struggle nowadays saying, when you pay people a barely livable wage, which is often what's at retail, or they're there just to pass through, they're earning money for an education or beer on the weekend. How do you get them to feel that there's a higher purpose and a higher passion to what they're doing? And that maybe their time with you is going to be much more than just a part-time job, but some the kind of lessons in life you got when you did your fruit stand? Well, I mean, I first talking about the wage, I think it is a, it's a huge problem. And it's one we're going to have to think about a lot more seriously, especially with the inflation going on. It really does come down to having fun at work. Yes, part of it is getting paid. But the other part is you want to be around other people in your environment that you relate to, that you like, that you can talk to, you can have fun with. If you don't have that, then I think it does just become a job and it's a miserable experience. So I think it's on us to always make sure that it, it is that fun environment. And you know, sometimes it's serious. Like in, in December, the associates probably are not having as much fun. Uh, it's rush, rush, rush. But there is some fun in that finding a, a toy for a grandparent that they're desperate to find. You have to find pleasure in, in what you can deliver as a store associate or a head office worker or whatever it is, you know. So 
it has to be something more than just the money. A lot of the passion and pursuit and falling in love with things today seems to be happening through technology. You know, if I happen to like Australian football, I can get that on my mobile phone. How do you make sure within the retail environment, because it's so important to be delivering that experience, people realize that person to person, like you said, finding a special toy for the grandparents matters. It's meaningful. It's a good day's work. How do you instill that within your culture? It's a really tough thing to to instill. I think it's about finding people that have the right mindset. COVID's a great example. You can walk through COVID and look at everything negative that's happened. And there's been a lot of negative, but at some point you have to look at things and take the positives out of them. And so I think we just have to make sure we hire people with the right frame of mind that feel like it's valuable, it's fun, it's enjoyable to have these connections with other people. I think inherently we all know we're social creatures and that I think we all know the phone and communication has taken something away from our lives. We're starting to see people realize that these connections are important and they're important in having a a truly fulfilled life. How do you find time to make sure your family also matters? I don't want to sound like one of those guys who's like, oh, well, it's about the quality of time. Yeah, it is, but it's also about the amount too. You know, you can't just always say, well, I, I see my kids once every two weeks, but it's great quality time for that. I'm fully focused on them. To me, that that's not something I buy into. I want to be a presence in my daughter's life as she grows up. And so it's about making tough choices to sacrifice some things. I, I very much, am, I talk to my daughter every day and sometimes it is FaceTime because I'm not home. I make sure I spend every Saturday, Sunday with her. And I, you know, I, I'm always available for the companies and they can get a hold of me, but I think it's really about prioritizing things. Businesses don't need you 365 days a year. There's hills and valleys to it, but don't get too sucked into only working or only being at home. You've got to have a balance. And if you listen to yourself, you know when you're going too far one way or the other. I do a lot of speaking at retail conferences and I always talk about the six P's of retail were always the premise, the product, the place, promotion, price and people. But a lot of that's been neutered by the Amazons of the world. It really is coming down to what I call the B's. That why do consumers want to be in your store? You need to compete on where your strengths are. Amazon's strength is being digital. It's being convenient. You know, the pricing is not the best, it's not the worst. Whereas a physical retailer, your advantage is that you're physical. So if you're just taking your store and you think that you can just throw the product on the shelf at a a fairly good price and it's just going to work, that doesn't work anymore. You need customers to have a reason to come to you. When you look at the the stores that you own, whether it's what I own or what you own, you, you need to make that into an experience. If it's a computer store, you better have, you know, store associates that really understand computers. They understand that language, the talk of what the people who truly are coming in to buy are looking for. For us, we better understand through the eyes of a three, four, five, six-year-old, what is magical, what is great, what is exciting. So I think you have to look at it from your customer's lens of how do I make my store what Amazon can't be? Realistically, most people are willing to spend a little bit more to have a better experience. So I'm not saying if it's $10, they'll pay 20, but if it's 10 versus 1050, that's a 5% difference. Most people will pay that 50 cents if they love the environment that they're coming into. Doug Putman, I always end my podcast with the three things I'm going to take away. 
Number one, never overvalue your own ideas. And I think having that wisdom, the way you learned it at a young age, by getting your parents to overvalue is fantastic because I think we get so caught up sometimes in what we believe and we don't spend enough time and try to understand, does it really matter to other people? Second one is just your total appreciation for risk and reward. And you're listening, whether it's your career, whether it's investing yourself, your ideas, understand that going after reward is a tightrope. It's exciting. It's engaging. It's thrilling. You don't have to be an entrepreneur, but you're, you're aiming higher. And if you fall off that tightrope, it's not the end of the world. You can get back on. You can reclaim the place you had in the past. So don't fear risk to prevent yourself from going for reward. And the final thing is really Everything you talk about humanity and people, this reason to believe, having a mentor, trusting people, hiring the right people, it truly comes down to this technology might get faster, it might get better, it gets cheaper, but it comes down to the one thing that matters most. Technology doesn't have a heart. People have a heart. Doug Putman, you've been an unbelievable guest in Chatter That Matters. I was a fan before. I'm a bigger fan now. I love your self-deprecating, but I think you're one of the sharpest tools in the shed. Thank you very much. That's very flattering. I've been a small business owner all my life, and up until recently, that came with employees and responsibilities and rent checks and everything that goes with owning a business. The constant risk and reward battling these forces of change. But I can't imagine what it's been like for the last two years with people that are shouldering all of that, trying to go through this pandemic, the uncertainty, unpredictability. And on top of that, forces of change like new technologies and new ways of doing business. But I do know, and I think we all know, that the heart of our economy is small business owners. And it's in our collective interest to keep them beating strong. And I want to take a moment to give a shout out to RBC for all they're doing to support small businesses in communities across Canada. If you're a small business owner, an entrepreneur, or even thinking about becoming one, I encourage you to check out RBC's Small Business Navigator. This is a platform and it's packed with so much advice and insights extend far beyond just financial tools. For example, if you have an idea for a business, they have an article, five questions you should ask yourself to see if that idea has merit. If you're struggling with attracting talent in a tight labor pool, they got a whole series on how to attract and retain the employees that matter most to you. And if you're on the sidelines and thinking about starting a business, they have a step-by-step guide. And there's so much more, how to grow your business, transition your business, everything you need to find the path that best suits who you are and where you deserve and want to go. So here's to RBC and here's to all of you for doing what you can to support small business and keep the heart of our economy beating strong. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. 